Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 18. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and the guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses today. Starting in verse 1, we read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The title of my message this morning is True Greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. So help us, Lord, as your church, just to be attentive to all that you have to say to us this morning. We ask your blessing upon our children downstairs as they're being ministered to, Lord, as they're being taught your word, Lord, that they would also grow in their relationship with you. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us this service that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again yet, Lord. They're not saved. We pray, Lord, that you'd especially touch their heart today and they would see their need for you and that come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on the first day, God created the dog and said, Sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone who comes in or walks past. For this, I will give you a lifespan of 20 years. The dog said, That's a long time to be barking. How about only 10 years and I'll give you back the other 10? So God agreed. On the second day, God created the monkey and said, Entertain people, do tricks. Make them laugh. For this, I'll give you a 20-year lifespan. The monkey said, monkey tricks for 20 years, that's pretty long to perform. How about I give you back 10 like the dog did? And God said, okay. God agreed. On the third day, God created the cow and said, you must go into the field with the farmer all day long and suffer under the sun, have calves and give milk to support the farmer's family. For this, I will give you a lifespan of 60 years. 
The cow said, wow, that's kind of a tough life. You want me to live for 60 years. How about 20 and I'll give you back the other 40? God agreed again. On the fourth day, God created man and said, eat, sleep, play, marry, and enjoy your life. For this, I give you 20 years. But man said, oh, 20 years? Could you possibly give me my 20? Then the 40 the cow gave back, the 10 the monkey gave back, and then the 10 the dog gave back. That makes 80, okay? Okay, said God, and and you asked for it. So that is why for our first 20 years, we eat, we sleep, play, and enjoy ourselves. For the next 40 years, we slave in the sun to support our family. For the next 10 years, we do monkey tricks to entertain the grandchildren. And then for the last 10 years, we sit on the front porch and bark at everyone. Life has now been explained to you. Listen, when it, comes, when it comes to life, God desires that we have a full and fruitful life. And I believe that God has given each one of us that inborn trait that makes us want to succeed in life, that makes us want to do great in whatever God calls us to do. But the reality is, as we will see this morning, is that true greatness is found in two things, in humility and in holiness. And those are our two points that we're going to have this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, true greatness is found in humility. And number two, true greatness is found in holiness. Let's look at first, true greatness found in humility. Look at verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, according to Luke chapter nine, verse 46, we read there that the disciples were actually arguing over who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, they wanted Jesus to end the debate. Jesus, who is the MVD? Get it? Most valuable disciple. Now what's interesting is Matthew records at that time the disciples came to Jesus. What time is he talking about? What time is being mentioned? Well, it's a time, if you recall, that the nine of the other disciples couldn't cast out the demon. Remember? And they were arguing between the scribes and the crowd of the people why they couldn't cast this demon out. Then you had Peter, James, and John returning from this amazing mountaintop experience where they saw Moses and Elijah standing next to Jesus in his glorified state. They even heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son, hear him. But then as they're coming down that mountain, Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, listen, mum is the word about what you just saw until after my death and resurrection. Now you know as well as I do that keeping a secret like that had to have been a tremendous struggle. But it can also give you an advantage over others if you can figure out a way to let them know that you have a secret without letting them know the secret. Here's where I like to use my sanctified imagination. The Bible doesn't say it, but I can imagine something like this. They come down the mountain, and the other nine are unable to cast out this demon out of the boy. Once Jesus returns, he takes care of it, and now the disciples are all talking. And Peter, James, and John are all excited over this mountaintop experience. And maybe Peter said something like, Guys, it was the most exciting, most wonderful thing that ever happened in my life. And James add, man, for me too, I've never seen anything like that. John chimes in, man, I hope we get another chance to, to go up to that mountain soon and see it again. Now, when the rest of the disciples heard them talking like that, you know, obviously their curiosity is going to be, be, be brought up. Well, what are you guys talking about? What did you see? What happened? Well, we really can't say... Maybe someday we three can tell you nine what we saw on top of the mountain, uh, but, but you nine that couldn't cast out a demon, you nine of little faith. 
Right now, Jesus only wants us three to know, and, and we've been instructed not to tell anybody else. What? Yeah, you see, here's the deal. Clearly, Jesus has singled out us three here because we're going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. No, you're not. Yes, we are. No, you're not. And they find themselves comparing themselves to each other. And the Bible says when we do that, we err greatly. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, for we do not uh, class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. Paul is saying to the church there in Corinth that we are making a big mistake when we look at what's going on spiritually in someone else's life and then compare that to our life. He's telling us, don't compare. We're not wise, Paul says, when we do that. Well, why is that? Well, because one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to evaluate yourself way too highly. Oh, you know, I'm so much better than this person as I pray and I fast. Or you're going to devalue yourself too low. Oh, I'm praying and fasting, but I'm just not good enough. What's the use? Now, again, it's not a bad question to ask who is the greatest and and how can I be the greatest when I look at, at character and living my life for Jesus. But what it makes it terrible is when we actually, again, compare ourselves one to another. Now, think about this for a moment. Do you really think that the disciples thought that when they came to Jesus and asked the question, who is the greatest, that Jesus was actually going to name names? I mean, that that as Jesus starts to say in verse 3, Surely I say to you, a Peter standing, standing there going, oh, come on, say it's me, say it's me, you say, say it's me, oh, let it be me, please say it's me. Do you know what that's like? It's like praising the brilliance of the moon while ignoring the sun. You know, the moon has no brightness in and of itself, it's only a reflection, so it is with us. The Christian isn't the source of all the good he exhibits, he or she is only a reflection of the glory of Jesus. But I love this, because right in the middle of this, their discussion on who the, who the greatest is, Jesus calls this little child over to him and, and, and you know, I can picture him picking him up and then sitting him on his lap and he says, listen, unless you are converted and become as this little child, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, upon first reading this, you would say that after the disciples were acting so childish, why would Jesus then tell them you need to be like a child? Reminds you of the story of an older man that, that uh, went into a toy store and he gazed in wonder at the electric train uh, rumbling around the track. With a gleam in his eye, he motioned for the clerk, pointing to the train. He says, I'll take one of those. The sales girl responded, my, your grandson will really enjoy that. To which the elderly fellow replied, you know, I think you're right. Better make that too. You know, there's a famous line that goes, you're only as old as you think. Here Jesus says, if you want to be great for God, then you have to be converted and become as little children. Now, that verse certainly has been abused and misunderstood, but remember, Jesus is talking about conversion, not reversion. Jesus is not talking about going back and, and, you know, finding your inner child. He's talking about finding a new way of life. This is just as radical of a statement that Jesus made in John 3, 3, when he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The important thing emphasized in the verse is the new birth. You must become a little child in the sense that you must be born again. When you're born again, you start out spiritually as a child. You know, there's an interesting statistic about the age of coming to Christ. For years, church leaders have heard the claim that nearly 9 out of 10 Christians accept Jesus Christ as their Savior uh, before the age of 18. Now, if that statistic was accurate in the past, it no longer depicts U.S. society. 
The current Barna study indicates that nearly half of all Americans who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do so now before reaching the age of 13 years old. 43%. Two out of three born-again Christians, 64% made that commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. And there's a reason for that, and we'll look at that in a moment. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted. That word converted. In the original language, it means to turn around and go in the other direction. Stop the direction you're going. Go the other way. And that's the same thing as repentance. Same meaning. Stop the direction you're heading. Go the other way. Jesus said this because the disciples... Their whole motivation in which they were coming to him and even asked the question is all wrong. You know, if they're truly being spiritual, again, if you compare yourself with someone else, it's wrong. And that's why Jesus uses this young child as an object lesson. He says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a simple child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know that word for a little child there? It's aptly translated in the Greek word. It's a Greek word, pahidi, and it means a very, very young child. Maybe a toddler, four, maybe five-year-old. He just kind of pulls him and sets him on his lap. And, and again, I think the mind of a very young child, they carry special ingredients, which I think make for, for true humility. And why those under the age of 13 come to Christ easier than older folks? See, a child carries three ingredients, if you're taking notes, that are special to them. Number one, a child has the ability to trust. A child has the ability to trust. Now, trust is a byword of the word faith. Children easily put their faith and trust in others, even perfect strangers. I remember when my daughter Laura was about 13 years old and Annie was about six, that Laura would dress up and she'd put this wig on and, and, and uh, you know, had all these, these old sweaters on and stuff and she, she would pretend to be a bad guy to teach Annie not to talk to strangers. And Laura would offer Annie some candy. She would say, want some candy, little girl? And then he would say, yes, thank you, Laura. And Laura would go, no, 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 I'm not Laura, I'm the bad guy. Didn't matter, Annie wanted the candy. And kids will do that. They'll ask a perfect stranger to push them on a swing. But adult, man, we're, we're suspicious. There's a scam going on there. What, 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 what's going on here? What, what's your agenda? Not kids. Man, they just trust I think of another story when Annie was about eight or nine and we went out to Table Rock Lake and there's a place where you can cliff dive off into the, into the lake. And there's a couple different levels. One's kind of small, medium, and a really high one. And, and Annie got up and there's the, the small ones because she wanted to jump off the cliff. I said, all right. So I got in the water there, not far from where she would jump in, and she had no problem. I mean, she just jumped right into that water. Why? Because she knew I'd be there to help her. Listen, do you express that same kind of faith? Can you say, no problem jumping into the deep water knowing that Jesus Christ will catch me? See, his word is true and it's going to take some sense of humility in our life to trust God because you have to let go of who you are and your abilities to save yourself and put your trust in Jesus. Because it's that childlike trust that Jesus is talking about. Childlike faith. Well, the second ingredient that a very young child carries that makes for true humility that we should all have is dependence. Dependence. See, children, they know their limitations. They, they possess humble dependence knowing that they depend upon another. They don't mind admitting that they have a need. You know, children are always, Dad, I need some help. 
Mom, come here. Dad, can you help me out here? You know, they don't mind being dependent at all, even at 22, 23, 24. No. But we as adults, we, we find ourselves, you know, when, when we know that we don't know the answers to life, we pretend like we do because we're very independent. Maybe the guy you go to, as a guy, you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you're looking for something and, and the clerk comes up, can I help you find something? No, I can find it myself. I know Lowe's like the back of my hand. You know, I, I know Home Depot. Got it under control. They walk away. I have no clue where this thing is at. But I don't want them to know that I don't know where it's at. Or this happens, and, and, and I know this has happened because I, I know who it's happened with. Maybe you do this with your phone. You, you, you know, you're trying to figure out how to take a picture or send a picture to someone and, and, and your 19-year-old says, Dad, let me help. Get lost, kid. I've been using this technology since before you were born. And then you go to send it, and suddenly you realize you just deleted every picture off of your phone. See, there's a lack of childlike dependency. It's a child that says, I need help. We need to be the same way. Like children say, I admit, I have needs. I, I, I need some prayer. Can you help me? Sure, I don't mind helping you. Rather than the adult-like attitude that walks into the fellowship and says, Hey, brother, praise God, I've been doing great. Great to be here. How are you? That's on the outside. On the inside, you're going, man, I can't take this anymore. I'm aching. I'm struggling. I'm having issues. I need to have someone, some, some, someone pray with me. See, there's a disconnect there. And I think that, that disconnect is pride. We're not recognizing the fact that we are dependent. We are dependent on each other. Then the third ingredient that a very young child carries that makes for true humility that, that we should all want in our lives is children have that special desire to want to make you happy. Their kids want to make you happy. They want to make someone else happy. Thinking of others. I got all sorts of family stories today. I think of the time my, my son Matthew, I think it was five or six, and it was Mother's Day. And, uh, you know, we'd come home from church and Laura ran into Andy's bedroom in order to wrap Lisa's Mother's Day present. And they, they all came out with a present. But Matthew, he also had a present that you could tell that he just ran in and wrapped as well. And before Laura or any could give Lisa a present, Matthew hands her his. Lisa opens up to find out it was Annie's bracelet that he had wrapped up and, and given to, to mom. Here, mom, I got this for you. But the point is, a child will often take their favorite toy and wrap it up and give it away just to make someone else happy. Now, with Matthew, he took someone else's toy, but the point is, it's the attitude, you know, wanting to make mom happy. And you folks, you know that you have kids. You know, one of the most touching things your kids could do is they want to give you something. Maybe it's their Sunday school craft. Oh, look what I made, mom. Look what I made, dad. Maybe it's something that you know that they love their favorite toy, and they want to give it to you. And there's something that happens in a child's heart that says, Mom, I made this for you. Dad, this is for you. Wow. I mean, that's a blessing of having children and seeing them love you unconditionally and, and having that automatic desire to make someone else happy. These are precious ingredients. Trust, dependence, a desire to bring happiness in others' lives. So the Lord places these important priorities on children so that we as adults, that we can learn them as well. That we can apply these same ingredients to our lives. Trust, dependence, a desire to bring happiness to others' lives. That's why Jesus said in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on, he says, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me, in verse 5. That's great. Jesus is saying we receive him when we minister and bless children. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Get involved in the children's ministry. <laughs> bless kids. 
Notice that in verse 5, Jesus comes right back to the child that he has taken into his arms. And I can picture maybe Jesus maybe tickling him a little bit or hugging on him. And this is a very tender moment. Maybe playing. Then all of a sudden he looks up and warns it against those who would seek to harm this child. Look at verse 6. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Man, Jesus sounds a little bit like the Jewish mafia. You mess with my kids and you're going to go swimming with the fishes in a concrete wetsuit. You know, I mean, he's just he's ready to, to let him have it. How big was a, a millstone in, in those days? Well, they were four to five feet in diameter, at least 12 inches wide. How heavy? Oh, only about two or three tons. See, what Jesus has done here is to show us that in God's eyes, children are very, very precious to him. So much so that he says to us as adults and quite sternly, if you cause any one of these kids to sin, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Can I bring that into modern day language? You are better off dead at the bottom of the sea if you think about causing one little child to sin. Get this, every year more than 3.6 million referrals are made to child protection agencies involving more than 6.6 million children. A referral can be multiple children. The United States is one of the worst records among industrialized nations, losing an average between four and seven children every day to child abuse and neglect. Kenny was sharing with us on Wednesday night in, in Uganda that, that, that people just leave their babies right on the streets and abandon them. According to the data from the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data Systems reported in 2016, a total of 1,750 children died from abuse and neglect in the United States alone. However, studies also indicate significant undercounting of child maltreatment fatalities by state agencies, so the number is even lower, higher than what you think. More than 70% of the children who died as a result of child abuse or, or neglect were two years of age or younger, and more than 80% were not yet old enough for kindergarten. 80% of child maltreatment fatalities involve at least one parent as perpetrator, and as many as 40% of children who are sexually abused are abused by older or more powerful children. That's not even a mention, abortion, and the atrocity of that. I recently got a, a text uh, from a group of 40 Days for Life. Uh, Ginger uh, uh, Presley sent it to me. We had Bonnie come out and talk about that here at the church. Uh, basically what they told me is that, that Planned Parenthood, now they're targeting our facility here in Springfield. Since we gained victory preventing surgical abortion from happening up in Columbia, uh, Missouri, and now it looks like St. Louis is about to lose its license for surgical abortions, it's only practical that Planned Parenthood is now uh, want to get something going down here. Up until now, Planned Parenthood only would refer people to, to St. Louis for the abortions. Now they, they want to get something going here. We need to be praying that God would stop that immediately. It gets worse. According to the U.S. Customs Service, it estimates that there are more than 100,000 websites offering child pornography, which is illegal worldwide. Revenue estimates for the industry range from about $200 million to more than $1 billion a year. The typical age of children is between 6 and 12, but the profile is getting younger. The demand for pornographic images of babies and toddlers on the Internet are soaring, according to Professor Max Taylor of the Combating Pedophile Information Networks in Europe. More babies and toddlers are appearing on the net, and the abuse is getting worse. It is more torturous and sadistic than it ever was before. 
That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, God Almighty, says to the person that's exploiting children in this way in verse 7, Woe to you. Woe to the world because of offenses. Why? Because judgment was come to the world. But the next sentence is a condemnation. Jesus says the next sentence, Woe to that man by whom the offense comes. I think of this verse not only when I hear about pedophilers or drug dealers or cult members, but when I hear of an educator who tries to attack a child's faith, woe to that college professor who tries to rattle a student's faith with atheistic propaganda. Woe to that movie producer or that music promoter who wants to corrupt our kids. I mean, we live in a fallen world. We live in a wicked place. But woe to the wicked person in the world who seeks to spread his perversion to our children. God's punishment will be severe. That's why we need to deal severely with our own sin. Jesus is making a powerful point. You guys are arguing over who's going to be the greatest while all around you terrible things are happening all around us. And this brings us to our second point. True greatness is found in holiness. Look now at verses 8 to 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Listen, sin separates us from God. It destroys our fellowship with Him. And if we're not for Jesus Christ giving His life upon that cross, we would all be lost. And the truth is Jesus came and paid a debt He didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. And He wants us to understand the seriousness of sin. I think we all know that Jesus is using figurative speech here. But when we recognize his serious attitude towards sin and causing someone to stumble, he's simply telling us this morning to cut it out. Don't have it in your life any longer. If something that you're doing is causing offense, then deal violently with it. Get it away from you no matter what the price or how painful it may be. Because here's the bottom line. Either my life is going to be used uh, in one of two ways. It's going to be a stepping stone where someone can get, get more spiritual, closer to the Lord, or it's going to be a stumbling block where someone else falls because of me. And I have to daily evaluate my life at the end of my day and say, Lord, have I been a stepping stone or have I been a stumbling block to someone? And I do think that we all would admit that if we, if we you know, literally you know, did what Jesus said, or you cut off our hand and gouged our eyes, I think we would all be sitting here in the congregation blind and armless people. <laughs> because the problem is not our eyes, it's not our hands. The problem is our wicked hearts. And it's continually bent on fulfilling our wicked desires and deeds of the flesh rather than walking in the Spirit as God desires. But you see, as we begin to lay hold of the seriousness of this, we then can respond to it as Jesus sees it and get serious about dealing with it in certain areas in our life that need to be dealt with. Because again, either our lives are a stepping stone and helping someone or it's going to be a stumbling block. And the reason I bring this up is as you look closely at certain words here in the text, we see a foot, we see a hand, we see an eye. And we know that Christ is speaking figuratively, but, but we also know that we, we see that somewhere else in Scripture. First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about the body of believers. He says there in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, or I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? 
And here's my point in bringing this up. If the hand causes the body to sin, cut it out. If the foot causes the body to sin, cut it out. We're, we're, we're responsible to one another. We're accountable to one another. And next Sunday, we're going to look at church discipline and what to do if a brother or sister is in sin and refuses to listen. But what we need to do this morning is to look at what Jesus is saying, and that is take sin seriously. So much so that Jesus says here, uh, but he talks about being cast into the everlasting fire and being cast into hell fire. You know, today, many have rejected the notion of hell altogether. Oh, it doesn't exist. In fact, according to the Pew Research Group uh, from 2015, an article, they said that only 58% of Americans believe in hell compared to 72% who believe in heaven. You know, well, that's just the world. You know, what do you expect? No, this is another survey said this. They found that 35% of Baptists, 54 Presbyterian, 54% Presbyterians, 58% of Methodists, and 60 of uh, Episcopalians do not believe in a literal hell. What does Jesus say of the reality of hell? It's not a literal place. It's not figurative. In fact, in Mark's gospel of the same story, Mark adds to Jesus saying, it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. The Bible is clear. God's word teaches that there is a little place called hell and you can either believe the clear word of God or you can believe the lies of Satan. I choose to believe God. Let God be true and every man a liar. And Jesus is saying here that we're to be so concerned about being great. Uh, you, you, he's saying you, you are so concerned about being great in God's kingdom, yet the bigger concern is are you living a holy life? Are you living a life pleasing to God? Or are you dealing radically with the sin in your life? Because Jesus would say to some today, if you're living in sin with no remorse, and if by the way you're living you're also causing someone to stumble, then you need to realize that you are living your life dangerously. And you may well be on the path that leads to your eternal damnation in hell. And these are powerful words here, folks. God is saying, be careful. Be aware of the reality that those who reject Jesus Christ will face. And when it comes to our own life, deal drastically with sin, both for our sake and the sake of others, because the fires of hell are real and everlasting. So Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, then it starts with living a holy life. Listen, we all know those things that cause us to sin. Usually they're very obvious. I mean, if you're spending all your time, all your days watching television shows that are making you, you, you know, covet, making you, you lust, or making you lazy or greedy, all those things, you know what you need to do. You know you need to get rid of it. Don't just sit there going, I know I can get victory over this if I want to, and then you don't do anything about it as you've been watch some horrible TV show hour after hour. Guess what? Unless you take this seriously, you won't stop. Your flesh loves it way too much. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be obedient to God's Word and, and cut certain things out of our lives. I always like the story of, of Ezra, chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, and it says that it came to Ezra's attention that the people had sinned against God by marrying uh, foreign wives. It says there that Ezra the priest stood and said to them, You have committed a terrible sin. By marrying pagan women, you have increased Israel's guilt. So now confess your sin to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do what he demands. Separate yourself from the people of the land and from these pagan women. Then the whole assembly raised their voices and answered, Yes, you are right. We must do as you say. And the book ends, Ezra ends, with 107 men putting away their pagan wives. Whatever's causing you to sin, 
Cut it out. Get rid of it. Cast it from you. You see, if we truly have a love for the lost, then we're not going to want to offend them or stumble them by the way in which we live. And again, our lives are either a stepping stone or a stumbling block. Let me give you a plan this morning of three specific ways that would help us to, to prevent you and I from causing our brother or sister to stumble or fall. Three preventions. Number one, watch out for lust. Number two, watch out for gossip. And number three, watch out for self-centeredness. Watch out for lust. Man, if you're a single guy here or you're a single girl here, look at your brother or sister. Look at the, maybe a potential boyfriend or girlfriend. Look, them as a bro- look at them as a brother or a sister in Christ. Someone who Christ died for. Guys, look at older women in the church as mothers in the faith. If the internet is a problem, get rid of your computer. At the very least, put it in the center of your living room so that everybody sees what you're looking at. Watch out for gossip number two. You see, once I get someone to listen to my complaints, then I can get that person to complain also. And before you know it, we're all complaining and talking about people. And if you're doing that, then you're causing the body of Christ to stumble. It would be better for you not to call yourself a Christian than to play the Christian game and think that somehow, you know, as you continue to sow discord, you'll have God's blessing. It won't. It won't happen. Get rid of gossip. Number three, watch out for self-centeredness. Wanting everyone to give me attention. It's all about me, 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 me. You know, Toby Keith had that song called, I want to talk about me. You talk about you, I want to talk about me. You see, folks, each one of these things cause a part of the body to stumble and to fall and to fail. But we're being taught here, what Jesus wants us to understand is that our part in the body of Christ, when it comes to dealing with temptation, when it comes to dealing with sin, we need to be accountable to each other. Listen, if a guy is struggling with alcohol and drunkenness and, and some other sin, then another guy needs to get together with him so there's accountability so he can pray for one another. So that when he says, hey, you know what? I've been tempted lately to run out and have a beer. There needs to be someone that says, listen, don't do that. But sadly, what makes it worse is that they get you tangled in their sin and you say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Let's go split a 12-pack together. No, what are you doing? You see, you're, not, you're one another's brother or sister in the Lord. You're supposed to be helping one another in those times of despair. You're not to encourage them in that. You're, supposed to, uh, you're not supposed to get involved in it yourself. If someone's heading that way, you want to put the brakes on. And the only way to do that is if you, if you take very seriously these verses in 8 and 9 where, where Jesus takes sin so seriously. Then you begin to see the severity of the way that Jesus Christ looked at sin when it comes to the body of Christ. And you see what Jesus had to go through to pay for that sin. It's time to deal radically with them. How many people really deal radically when it comes to sin in their lives? Paul, the apostle, man, he, he was a, a man that, 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 you know, you think, well, Paul, he didn't have problems like that in his life. Oh, he certainly did. But he knew how to deal, deal with his problems. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do obtain a perishable crown, but we for, for an imperishable crown. And then, then he, gets, he says this, Therefore I run this, not with uncertainty, uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it under subjection, lest what I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul saw himself as a vessel for the Lord and then he doesn't want to, he beats his body into submission. There's this constant battle that he recognized and that he, he dealt with to bring his body under submission. If there was a fight to be fought, it was his own impulses. 
And he wanted to have the freedom from certain activities so that he might have the freedom in preaching and teaching God's truth. So Paul says, I bring my body, I bring those urges, I bring those desires to sin under subjection. I deal radically with those issues in my life. I think of Joseph, you know, and and, uh, when Mrs. Potiphar tried to seduce him, what did he do? He ran. He was out of there. I wonder if some of us, if Mrs. Potiphar were to grab you, would you run or would you say, well, she is my boss's wife. I should try and witness to her. (laughs) Maybe you could, but why risk it? It could be your undoing. Joseph, he knew, said, I, I don't know if I'm strong enough to face this battle. I'm out of here. I mean, I got I to. And so he ran out of the house. She grabbed hold of his robe and he flew out naked. He didn't care. He'd rather face a little bit of embarrassment from those who said, look out, Joseph, he's streaking, the first streaker, than to have to deal with, the, you know, a sin that he committed. You know, the Bible says, flee youthful lusts. Can I add something to that? When you flee youthful lusts, don't leave a forwarding address. Some people want to flee the devil, but it's like they hand the card and says, here's my phone number. I'm there after five. You know, we'll, we'll get together. Flee. Leave. Make it your practice. Make no provision for the flesh. Paul says that in Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Finally, let's look at these last four verses here in closing. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful verse? I mean, here's one of the places that you, you get the idea of guardian angels. Every child around the globe has specific angels standing before the throne of God. The angels always see the face of my Father in heaven, Jesus says. Let me tell you, if they can see God's face, I know God can see their face. So our little kids downstairs is there, you know, in the nursery and preschool, and they're having fun singing songs about Jesus. I want to suggest to you that the angels are reflecting that joy in their faces to our Heavenly Father as the kids are having fun that morning, this morning. But I also want to suggest that if anything happens to the kids that are not right, that an angel may reflect that face as well. And God is able And God will take account of that problem and deal with that problem as as he sees fit. Jesus goes on to verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. I mean, think about it. Children are lost so easily and disoriented so quickly. Continuing on that theme, Jesus begins to talk about his concern for those who are truly lost, not those who pretend to know where they're going and, and what they're doing, but those who humbly acknowledge that they are lost and hurting. Look at verse 12. Jesus asks, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountain to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, as surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think this really, this little story gives us some interesting insights into our Lord. And I'm going to give you three things, and then we're going to close and enter into our time of communion. First of all, this story tells me that God's love is absolutely unconditional. Absolutely unconditional. Notice that although the lost sheep was one who had strayed, the shepherd didn't say that dumb sheep was off wandering where he shouldn't be. Why wasn't he with the rest of the flock? Well, maybe he'll learn a lesson now if they're all alone. No, his love was independent of the obedience of the sheep. So too, whether you're staying or straying, God's love for you is absolutely unconditional. So 
So why not stray? Well, because there's dangers out there. There's wolves, there's poisonous weeds, there's all kinds of dangers that can bruise us and break us. Slowly but surely, we're learning that the safest place is to stay, is to stay close to the shepherd. Secondly, this love tells me is individual. God's love is individual. He loves each of us as if there's only one of us. But again, we tend to compare ourselves with others. Lord, you have millions and millions of followers of sheep. Franklin Graham is always talking to you. I'm sure you know you, you pay more attention to his prayer, great glory in the crusade, man. I'm sure you're talking to him. There's just me, a dumb sheep who's astray. God doesn't do that. The truth is the Lord sees people individually. He would have sent his prophets and apostles and recorded all the scriptures just for me. He would have sent his son just for me. He would have died just for me, just for you. Finally, number three, God's love is emotional. When he finds a wandering, straying sheep, what does he do? Does he rebuke it? Does he smack it upside his head with his staff? Does he shake him? Does he skin him alive? Now look at verse 13. He rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. When we wander, go astray, and the Lord comes after us and finds us there, there's this outburst of emotion, not anger, joy. He gathers that straying sheep in his arms and rejoices greatly because he loves them deeply. Keep in mind that this illustration is all an answer to the question, who was the greatest? Jesus said, check out this little child. That's the key. You'll not only enter into the kingdom, but you'll be elevated within the kingdom as you continue to humble yourself, as you continue to, to live a holy life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling with, with a certain sin in your life and you've been trying to deal with it on your own, afraid to ask for prayer, afraid to seek for help. You're so addicted to sin that you feel as though you're falling away from the Lord. I would encourage you this morning to become as a child dependent on one another and go to your Christian brother, go to your Christian sister and confide in them. Tell them you need prayer. Come talk to one of the elders after church and uh, after service and, and, and let us pray for you. Be accountable to one another. See, we as Christians shouldn't be judging one another or condemning one another, but praying for one another, encouraging one another. Maybe you're here this morning and you've walked away from the Lord. and You're not walking with Him as you used to walk, and, and you're not praying, and you're just kind of going through the motions of church. Let me tell you, Jesus is looking for you. He's left the 99, so to speak, to go to get you, and He's brought you here this morning to, to get your heart right with Him. Recommit your life to Him this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, as we've been looking at this morning, man, Jesus is telling you, if you're not born again, if you're not saved, if you're not converted, you will not inherit eternal life. In fact, there's hell that awaits you. That's why if, if you're not born again this morning, I pray that you would give your life to Jesus Christ. We're going to enter in a time of communion. Communion is, is a time for believers to come together. So if you're not saved this morning and you have no plans on, on giving your life to Jesus Christ, when we pass out these elements, let them pass by you. And the Bible says if you take it unworthily in an unworthy manner, you're going to heap judgment upon yourself. You know, just let it pass by you. A better solution to that would be give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, and then receive communion with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for this communion time that we can come before you and we can examine our lives, Lord, our hearts. Lord, as you talk about sin in our lives and, and dealing with sin, Lord, and, and how you know we deal with our eyes and what we see, cut it out in our hands, and 
and, and Lord, and, and our feet and where we go. Lord, we recognize that those are areas in life we all deal with, Lord, what we're looking at. Father, if, if we're putting things before our eyes that shouldn't be there, forgive us, Lord. Give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to be converted, to turn and walk away from it, Lord. Father, if we're listening to things that are bringing people down, that are stumbling us, Lord, if we're saying things that are stumbling other people with our tongue, with our gossip, Lord, help us to repent right here and now before we even enter that place of communion to get right with you, Lord, to turn from our sin and turn towards you. Father, if there's any here that have, that have walked away from you, and Lord, you brought him here this morning, and, and uh, Lord, you, you left the 99 to bring this one person here. Lord, help them to know how much you love them and help them to rededicate their lives to you this morning. And finally, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, Lord, even at this time as we, we prepare our hearts to receive communion, Lord, that they would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. I want to give you, as our eyes are closed and our, our heads are bowed, is there anybody here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? You want to be saved today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? I want to give you that opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ today. Just raise your hand. Father, thanks for your love and grace, your mercy in our lives. Bless this time now as we just worship you in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.